Amen. Thank you, Lauren and Nate. We are blessed to have three incredibly talented and gifted worship leaders in this church, including all of our choir as well, but these three here are just three of the best that I've ever worked with. Lauren sent me the the text of that song. I, I nudged Morgan. I didn't recognize the text when you sent it, but for all of us who grew up with Amy Grant's Christmas album, you knew that song, right? Yeah. Morgan said, do you want me to sing it for you? I said, no. Um, Praise to God whose love is shown, who sent his son to earth. Jesus left his rightful throne, became a man by birth. The virgin's baby son, all creation praised him. God incarnate, come, come to Bethlehem. Still a higher call had he, deliverance from our sins, come to set all people free from Satan's hold within. You want to come sing it, Morgan? You wanna, okay, all right. For by the sin of man we fell, by the Son of God he crushed the power of hell. Death we fear no more. Now we stand, this is the part that I think is so important for us going forward into 2020. Now we stand with strength, with power, the sons and daughters of God on earth, faithful to the final hour, Christ's righteousness, our worth. And now all praise is given for the babe, the son, the savior king is risen. Christ is Lord indeed. Powerful text. That's a, the gospel story in a nutshell there. Thank you, Lauren, for sending that. I wouldn't have realized that. But they're very intentional with what they choose to play, as you can tell. So uh, as us going forward, let's remember that we do stand in the power of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So it's an important time in the life of our church. It's the first Sunday of the 20s, don't you love being able to say 20s instead of the 10s or teens or whatever that last decade was? I love it. We're in the 20s now. I saw a post that said uh, it's up to us to make sure that in 75, 80 years that they refer to this as the roaring 20s again. So everybody get, get, get started here. It's me a big party. We're going to start an important sermon series in the life of our church today. For the next two months, we're going to talk about what kind of church Woodmont Baptist is going to become in the next 75 years of our history. I say 75 because our, our church is 78 years old. We've been on this corner for 78 years. What will those who come after us find? Will they find us faithful? We're going to talk about our mission. What's our purpose today? And then we're gonna talk about how to carry out the purpose next week as we talk about our strategy. But I don't want us to miss what's going on in the, the greater church calendar. We are part of the Christian church around the world, so uh, I hope you understand that we're gonna talk about epiphany today as well. An epiphany is known as a general moment of sudden revelation or insight. Now I wanna tell you about an epiphany that has come to myself and to our staff regarding who we are as a church and what we want to be about. You know, Epiphany was the day when Christians around the world celebrate the event of the Magi, the wise men from the East arriving at Jesus' house. Scholars think it may be up to two years after the birth of Christ, but they brought gifts to the newborn king. They followed the star. And Christians talk about this as an uh, epiphany because it's a revealing of God's plan. It's a revealing of God's plan for the nations 
because these pagan magi from the east were made aware of God's salvation, not only for the Jew, but also to the Gentile, which for those of us who are not Jewish here, that includes you and me, which is good news for us. So an epiphany is important when you're trying to make a decision, when you're trying to gain some kind of insight, it's important to arrive at an epiphany because then you're able to make a wise decision when you have that moment of revelation or insight. I don't know about you if you're trying to make a decision here today or praying for an epiphany, but there's a decision that I often think about, a decision that I've been particularly concerned about for almost three years now, one that I've been pleading with the Lord about and reading books and seeking wise counsel about. It's a, a question that, that keeps me up at night. It's a question that many people in this city are asking. It's a question that many of my friends ask of me and people that I meet ask of me as well. The question is this, what kind of church is Woodmont Baptist going to become? What kind of church is Woodmont Baptist going to become? It's a question that became acutely important to me on January 29th, 2017, when I was called to be the pastor of Woodmont Baptist Church. It's a question that was overwhelming to me. It was a terrifying question. What do I know about pastoring a church? When this church voted to call me as pastor, it was an amazing day. I was so grateful and blown away by God's grace in my life, but I quickly was terrified and overwhelmed. What could happen in this church? What have I gotten myself into? What have I signed up for? You know, it was God's grace that intervened quickly in my first few weeks of pastoring when a seasoned, I hope he is okay with me saying seasoned, a seasoned pastor, a wise pastor, I'll put it that way, uh, from Nashville called me and said, do you want to get coffee? And we had met uh, each other briefly and kind of knew of each other. So I said yes. And as soon as I sat down to coffee with him, I immediately began drilling him about, okay, how do you plan a, a five-year strategic vision? And, and what kind of Sunday school discipleship strategy do you have? And how do you do small groups? And do you do cell groups and, and home groups? And, and, and how do your bylaws work with the polity structure? And, and do your deacons do this? And, and what do you do with parking lot? And what do you do with, and, and he was like, Nathan, settle down, slow down. I said, okay. He said, look, pastoring is, is not all those things that you're talking about. Pastoring a church is more basic and more simple. He said, look, if you'll do these three things, it really will help. He said, if you'll just learn to preach God's word and let God's word be the seed that is sown, as Rachel talked about, it will do great things. If you'll depend on prayer as a lifeline, if you can cultivate both privately and corporately a life of prayer in your church, you'll see amazing things happen. And then third, if you'll just love your people. Just love your people. They need it. Just love your people. Stay in God's word, stay on your knees, and stay close to God's people. I, I realized then that that would make a healthy church. I felt like the weight of the world was, was off my shoulders at that point. The, the Lord didn't leave us to figure out church on our own. 
He's, he's given us wise mentors and pastors, but he's also given us his word, which has a lot to say about this thing called the church. I began to, to hear the Lord answering the question of what kind of church Woodmont Baptist would become. I was been, beginning to realize that I, I wanted Woodmont to become a, a healthy, thriving church, of course, but I began to realize that that was going to take time. That You couldn't just wave a magic wand or start a new program or change some structure immediately. That it's going to be more like what Eugene Peterson talks about when he talks about pastoring. He says, pastoral work consists of modest, daily, assigned work. It's like farm work, he says. You have to do all the behind-the-scenes work. And I was beginning to realize that. So I found other mentors. I, I found some in person, and I found some in books. And, and one helpful book was Purpose Driven Church by Rick Warren. It's kind of like how to do church for dummies. It's just real basic and step-by-step. Step, but he really brought some key insights into how I understand church. You know, I, I, he pointed out two key Bible passages in Scripture that show us what church is supposed to be about. And let me give a disclaimer. The Bible is not a how-to manual. It's not something you can go to to proof text and just say, here's what this verse says, so here's what we're going to do. The Bible is an overarching, beautiful story. It's a meta-narrative about the saving work of God throughout history. But I do want to look at two passages today that Rick Warren points to as being foundational for who the church is and what we are to be about. You know, people do try to reduce the Bible into these kind of how-to things, and I want to be careful to avoid that today. The first passage is where Jesus gives us two greatest commandments. The second passage is where Jesus gives us a great commission. In the Purpose Driven Church, Rick Warren says, a church that follows the great commandments and the great commission will be a great church. And I believe that is true. When I read that, I couldn't quit thinking about it. I still can't. So to start this year off, we're going to look at what is our purpose? What is our mission as a church? Who are we and what are we to be about doing? We're looking for an epiphany about what kind of church Woodmont Baptist is going to become. So we're going to dive into these, these two texts, the Great Commandments and the Great Commission, and ask the Lord to help us take these texts to heart today so that we can become the kind of church that he wants us to be. As the tagline there says, we're looking for God's mission for Woodmont, not Nathan's, not anyone else's, but God's mission. So will you stand, please, out of respect for God's word, if you're able to, as I read our two passages for today, Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40, then Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Hear now the word of the Lord. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And then from Matthew 28, the Great Commission. And Jesus came and said to them, 
All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, if we're going to be a healthy church, if we're going to thrive going forward, we've got to know our purpose, right? We've got to know why we're here. Why are we on this corner? Why do we exist as a church? Why do we show up on Sundays, Wednesdays, Bible studies? What is it that, that makes us want to give of our tithes and offerings to this church? What's our mission? We must be clear about our purpose first and foremost before we go forward. Recently, last summer, I, I was invited to hear about a conference, and, and normally I'm, I'm pretty cynical. I, I, I hear about these conferences and I think, oh, everybody just goes and tries to find a, a silver bullet to you know, get more attendance or something. But this was intriguing, and I had a friend who recommended it, so I signed us up. And five of our staff members went to a conference that was held at Judson Baptist Church uh, down the road, and, and it, it was really powerful time. The, the, the speaker was okay, and the content was pretty good, but the real powerful time was when our staff got into a room by ourselves to prayerfully discern what it is that the Lord is calling us to be and do. And I'm, I've been kind of skeptical about strategic plans and vision plans, because I, I know that churches roll these things out and nothing changes, and we get cynical and skeptical like me. But I really believe that the Lord has shown us some true and powerful realities from his word that apply to Woodmont Baptist Church now and forever, as long as we are in existence. So at the conference, the speaker started with purpose. What is our purpose? And you know, I, I, I came up with some really good ones. I came up with some, I'm, you know, I'm pretty witty. I can come up with some catchphrases, you know, and, and I started coming up with, oh, the purpose of the church is this. Purpose of the church is this. Oh, we could, we could put this as our, our purpose statement. And the speaker was like, yeah, uh, we don't get to rewrite the purpose. The, the, the purpose was given to us by Jesus. Yours are great, they're clever, but that's not the church's purpose. The church's purpose was already given to us, and we don't get to make it up. We don't get to rewrite it in a clever way because God's word is clear about why we're here. The Gospel of Matthew records the, the confrontations between Jesus and the, the Jewish authorities when he arrives in Jerusalem uh, during that holy week leading up to the crucifixion. So here in chapter 22, we have the Pharisees, the, the sect of Judaism that was so naive to believe that they could actually keep God's law sufficiently in order to gain holiness and entrance into God's heaven. They were extremely rigorous, and they now seek to expose Jesus as a fraud and as a heretic. So in verse 36, an expert in the Jewish law baits Jesus into an argument by feigning politeness. He says, teacher, and he asks, which is the great commandment in the law? You know, the rabbis had identified in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, 613 
individual mandates. There are 613 individual laws that are comprising God's Torah, God's law. And, and they would argue frequently over which of these 613 were the weightier matters and which ones were the lighter matters. Not that you were off the hook on any of them, but which ones were to be prioritized? Which ones had more weight and gravity and significance to them? So no matter what Jesus answered, he's in a trap is what they're thinking. But he handles the question beautifully. According to all of our sources that we have in rabbinic literature, and there's tons of it, he's the first one to combine these two laws in this beautiful way that he does. And it's because Jesus is God's living word that he can explain God's law in a way that no earthly rabbi ever could because he himself was the fulfillment of that law. Remember, he didn't come to abolish the law. The law itself is not evil. The law just reveals God's standard of, of holiness. The law just shows us that we need a savior. It shows that in the midst of this fallen world that there is a high and holy, exalted God who is both just and loving at the same time. It is part of the whole story, like I said, in the meta-narrative of the Bible. It shows us how far short we fall of God's standard of holiness and righteousness. So Jesus obliterates the Pharisees' idea that they could somehow be right in and of themselves if only they tried hard enough, if only they were so careful to follow every single rule, then maybe they would be right before God. Maybe then they could gain entrance into access to God's kingdom. But he shows them that this is not about following the rules. This isn't about do's and don'ts. No one in history has ever come close to keeping all 613 Commandments, of course. Okay, one person did. And he's the one who came to give us his righteousness, his perfection in exchange for our sin and shame and guilt in what Martin Luther calls a beautiful exchange. Jesus shows the Pharisees the law is, is not a guidebook for do's and don'ts to be meticulously argued over and followed but it's a guide for the heart. It's about our heart. Our hearts must undergo a, a transformation in order to learn to love the way God loves, in order to love God with all that we are, with every fiber of our being, with all of our strength, all of our mind, all of our heart. That's the greatest commandment there is. It's found in Deuteronomy 6.5, and it would not be you know, unfamiliar to these Jewish people because Orthodox Jews, even to this day, still recite this passage twice daily, once in the morning when they wake up and once before they go to bed at night. It's one of the most foundational statements in all of the Judeo-Christian tradition. It's called the Shema. It starts out the first word, Shema, hear. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. 
Jesus changes might to mind, and people have argued about what that means. Most scholars think it just means every part of you, all that you are. It's one of the most famous prayers in all of Judaism, and of course, they would know it. Why is it so important? Why does Jesus say it's the greatest commandment? What's so important about the Shema? Well, I've talked before about how St. Augustine, he, you know, in the 400s, early 400s, late 300s, he said that virtue and, and sin really is getting our loves out of order. Vice is, sorry, vice is getting our loves out of order. Virtue is getting our loves in the right order, in the correct order. You know, if, if we're in a conversation and, and I don't let you speak because I love my opinion more than I love you, then my loves are out of order. Does that make sense? Virtue is valuing you, loving you, putting you before my own opinion and listening carefully to what you have to say. A lot of people get their loves out of order when they love their work. They spend 60 hours a week or 70 hours a week there because they love money or status or power more than they love spending time with their own families. You know, love is, is a powerful thing, and we are loving creatures. We are desiring creatures. What is it that we love? You know, Descartes kind of taught this modern philosophy that we are brains on a stick and that we're just primarily thinking things and that ideas are what matter. But really, it's not like that. We're desiring creatures. We love, and you will love something. It may not be something that's good for you, but we all desire something. Learning to desire God and learning to desire his presence, learning to desire his kingdom, learning to desire his ways is what the Shema is all about. To love God first is the right and proper order of our loves. To put him in the place that only he deserves means to genuinely long for his presence. Some of us are running away from God and don't want to be near God. I would argue that your loves are out of order if that's you today. The, that longing in your bones, that ache that you know that God is good and that he's created you for communion with himself, that's what the Shema is talking about. There's a word that describes this love of God, a word that, that talks about the desiring of his presence and, and the love of him that seeks to express that love. It's called worship. You know, worship's one of those words that's kind of a church word that we hear a lot and it kind of gets old quick and reminds us of singing or going to some boring church service. But worship is our, our, our fundamental, foundational, hardwired nature and essence to love and to express that love and desire. When we talk about worship in its proper place, we're talking about worshiping Christ. Our primary function as the bride of Christ is to worship him, to glorify him, to make much of him, to make him known throughout the world. It's the only purpose, worship, is the only one of the five purposes that we will continue to do in heaven. 
the other four will cease. But Jesus doesn't stop there. The Pharisee only asks him for one commandment, but Jesus gives him a bonus one. He says, if we truly love God, then we'll learn to love others as God loves them, to see other people as God sees them. The commandment from Leviticus 19.18, to love our neighbors as ourselves is, is just the, the horizontal application of our vertical commandment to love God. If we desire communion with the high and holy God of the universe, that will manifest itself horizontally in the way that we love other people, in the way that we seek to put others' needs ahead of our own. And remember, who is our neighbor? Remember, a lawyer asked Jesus this question in Luke chapter 10, and he was talking about this commandment in Leviticus 19.18. Who's my neighbor, he says. And Jesus replies with a story about a mixed-race Samaritan who took care of an injured Jewish victim on the side of a road. Our neighbors are whoever the Lord brings into our path. Our neighbors could be the homeless person who showed up last Sunday who spent the night outside our building. Our neighbors could be the, the waitress who clearly was fed up with life and overwhelmed by her circumstances that day. It could be our actual neighbor who keeps blowing his leaves over into my yard. Our attitude towards others is, is summed up in the second purpose of the church, ministry. Loving others as ourselves, we call that ministry. Looking to the needs of those around us, looking to serve whoever it is that we may encounter that day. Loving others as God loves them means serving them like our deacons showed up last night and served the, the homeless men who spent the night beneath this very room here as they literally waited tables like the deacons did in Acts chapter 6 as they served these men. Ministry is a, a tangible expression of our love of God. It's love manifested in service, putting others in the first place. Well, not first place, that's God's place, but putting others ahead of ourselves as we sacrificially give ourselves away in order to become the body of Christ physically on earth, blessing everyone whom we may encounter that day. One of the prayers that I pray for my kids every day, they hear me pray it when I drop them off at school on those days, is I pray that they will be a blessing to everyone that they encounter. The cafeteria worker, the lonely kid on the playground, that they will be a blessing. May we all serve as ministers in this way. But Jesus didn't leave us with just these two commandments and then that was it and go, and go away. He completed the work that the Father had sent him to do. He died an atoning death on the cross and then he defeated death forever by rising again from the grave. And in his risen glory, he gave his disciples, those who would come after him and follow in his footsteps to do the work of starting this thing called the church. He gave them a great commission, a final commandment, to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that he had commanded them. 
I love the way uh, R.T. France, British scholar, puts it in his commentary. He says, the mustard seed is now about to grow into a mighty tree. The kingdom of heaven is to be established all over the earth. The baptism which John had originally instituted as the symbol for the new beginning for repentant Israel is now to be extended to people of all nations. We have a job to do. And isn't that great? It's, it's not the end of the disciples' mission when Jesus goes away. It's the beginning. All their training has just now led to this moment where they're going to go launch this global movement of reconciliation. Instead of their graduation ceremony, it's a commencement. You know the difference? Commencement is a beginning. They are about to commence their global mission to make disciples of all nations. We call this mission evangelism. Evangelism literally means to gospel, to go forth with the good news. If our church is going to grow at all, it's through evangelism. It's, otherwise, we're just sheep stealing from other congregations, which I have no interest in. If, we're going to have to be bold in 2020. And, and we're going to have to go beyond the typical ways of how we evangelize in this church. And we're going to have to seek those that the Lord is seeking those who need hope and healing, those that are moving to our city every day as we boldly take the gospel to them and sow those gospel seeds that Rachel was talking about earlier. I'm nervous and I'm excited about gospeling alongside of you in 2020. There's gonna be some amazing stories that come out of it and I can't wait to hear. We're gonna have some training opportunities for how to share the gospel with others. We're gonna be bold as we Speak to our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, our friends about the good news of Jesus Christ. Stay tuned for details. What does it mean to evangelize? D.T. Niles says it's just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. I love that definition. And what happens when someone finds the bread of life? Then they get to join the party. We call that fellowship. How do they join the party? What's that, that invitation look like? We call that baptism. Fellowship happens through baptism. As Baptists, we typically fellowship around the table as we like to eat a lot. But first, we acknowledge membership in the body through the sacrament of baptism. Jesus told us in the Great Commission to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Once we do that, the baptized person is part of our family forever closer than blood, tied together in the bond of the Holy Spirit. But the mission doesn't end there. We don't just bring people to the party and leave them there. We're called to engage in following Christ more closely and more dearly and more nearly as we teach them to observe all that Jesus has taught us. We call that discipleship. That's a tall order. It takes intentionality to help others move along that path of maturation and growing in grace and in Christian maturity. Our mission is clear, as you can tell, from these great commandments and from the great commission. We are, we're gonna summarize it in three ways, and I want every member to know these things, I really do. First one, we're to love God with all that we are. You have that, that graphic, Gabe, with the, the mission of Woodmont, and we believe this is God's mission as given to us in the scripture, to love the Lord with all that we are, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and to make disciples of Christ. I'm kind of rolling the three 
purposes from the Great Commission into the last one. We're to love God, love our neighbors, and make disciples. That's it. You know, Lil Cook, who's been our ministry assistant here for 17 plus years and been a, long, a member here a lot longer than that, sometimes in staff meetings, she'll remind us to major on the majors. Major on the majors. Focus on what really matters. This is what really matters. These three things. If we will take those seriously, then we will be a great church. Keeping in mind the great commandments to love God with all that we are, to love our neighbors as ourselves, and then to take seriously the great commission to go and make disciples. Our mission is the what, right? It's our purpose. It's the what we are about. But next week, I'm going to talk about the how, the strategy, how we do that. But let's not forget the why. We're doing this because we are the body of Christ. We get to play a part in God's gospel plan to redeem this fallen world and make all things new. If we can become a healthy, thriving church, then God's kingdom will break into this world in ways that we can't imagine. We will see lives changed and transformed for eternity in a billion year investment. Will you join us in this journey? I hope so. Let's pray. Lord God, you have shown us clearly in your word what our purpose is as the body of Christ. God, I pray that you would help us to take seriously the call to worship you, to love you with all that we are, to transform our hearts from becoming idle factories where we just desire things that are not life-giving, that are not truly of you. Help us to desire you above all else, God. We confess that we churn out idols all the time, that we go after counterfeit gods all the time. God, I pray that you would help us to love our neighbors, even those who are hard to love. God, this church has such a heart for ministry, and I thank you for that. But I pray that you would help us to do abundantly more than what we've been doing. As we become famous in Nashville for caring for the poor, for caring for those around us, for feeding the hungry, for, for helping those that are in, in life's dire circumstances. God, I pray that you would help us to make disciples. Help us to actively evangelize Nashville and beyond. Help us to see lives transformed as people come to saving faith in you for the first time and move from death to life for eternity. Help us be bold, O oh Lord, in how we share the gospel with those around us. Give us a passion for evangelism. And God, I pray you would help us to continue to grow in discipleship as we mature, as we grow in grace. And God, we thank you that this church loves each other as a family of faith. We pray you would continue to unite us in fellowship and in the bond of the spirit of love. We pray all these things in the high and holy name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. It's an exciting time, like I said, in our church's life. We're gonna have a time to respond right now. If you have never accepted God's call in your life to become a child of his, through adoption, through the Holy Spirit, through his atoning work on the cross and his resurrection, then there's no better time to do so than right now. If you want to talk to somebody or pray with somebody about whatever's going on in your life, I'm gonna ask Trey and Jane and Brad if they'll come up here. If you have a, a sickness or a relative who's lost and searching, you just want to pray with them about that, this is a time to do so. 
Uh, maybe you just want to join Woodmont. You want to say, I'm in. I want to do these things that you're talking about. I want to follow the purpose that God has for this church as a member of this family of faith. We invite you to come forward now and join. Whatever it is you need to do during this time, why don't we stand as we sing our hymn of invitation, Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus.